This is your Thursday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. So much to get to today. Timberwolves win. Gophers women's basketball team wins. Three-point barrage in both of those games from Anthony Edwards and Sarah Scalia. We'll get into that in a little bit. Sarah McClellan from the Star Tribune joins me here in a little bit to talk wild hockey. Urban Meyer fired. David Kahn speaks. So much to get to in this show. But first, what did I miss? Got to check back on Gopher football recruiting. Signing day was Wednesday. Not a ton of surprises for the Gophers, which is probably a good thing. P.J. Fleck addressed that in his Wednesday comments, talking about a recruiting class that includes 18 uh, incoming freshmen and one transfer. Got some skill position guys in there. But yeah, the biggest deal was they really didn't have a ton of surprises. Here was P.J. Fleck on that. As a leader, you don't like surprises, period, one way or another. I remember Heather surprising me for my birthday, but I actually talked to the valet guy who I knew, like, why am I here? He's like, it's your birthday. Don't tell her. And uh, boom, surprise, I got it. Woo-hoo. At least I knew beforehand. I hate being surprised, just so you know. And on the other end, too, when it doesn't work out. So when, when you're not surprised, it's a good thing. You know, you knew exactly what we were going into. We knew exactly who was going to. Um, we talk of put them to bed. That's what we kind of call it. That's the quote we use, put them to bed. And last night, we were all good and ready to go. And our staff does an amazing job of building those relationships. And, you know, I think that paid off at the end of why there's no surprises is because, you know, our guys just do so great, such a great job of identifying who's going to be the right fit. You're not perfect in recruiting. You're not always going to have the right fit. Not everybody's going to be here from signing day all the way to the end, especially now with the portal system the way it is. But you do everything you can to find and research the right fit, and I feel like we've done that with this class. Out of all the expected players who were uh, supposed to sign on Wednesday, only one did not. Defensive end Jack Pyburn from Florida, but uh, Randy Johnson reporting in his story on StarTribune.com and in the Star Tribune that he could still sign during the uh, traditional signing period or during the rest of this early period. So not out of the question that he signs as well. Gophers wind up with the number 10 ranked class in the Big Ten, number 43 overall according to 247 Sports. You know, that shows how quickly recruiting can change because just Tuesday they were rated, I believe, 7th in the Big Ten, 36th overall. Other teams had some of those surprises, I think, that uh, P.J. Fleck was talking about, probably in a better direction to help them edge ahead of the Gophers in that uh, in that department. Interestingly, the Big Ten East had all seven of its teams in the top 30 of those recruiting rankings. The best team in the West was Iowa at number 26, so kind of shows the disparity between the two divisions. I was kind of struck by a thought the other day that for the first time in what I can remember being a long time, a lot of Minnesota teams are in the weaker of whether it's divisions, conferences, what have you. Um, I think the Wolves in the Western Conference, finally that has come around to them a little bit. The, the Gophers football team, certainly Big Ten West, a far easier go than the Big Ten East. Talk about the Twins and the AL Central. That's that's always been a boon for them. So competition-wise, I feel like Minnesota teams have a leg up in that way. And it feels like the, the gap is going to grow in college football here. That said, um, Gophers still have some work to do, perhaps, in recruiting. P.J. Fleck talked about how much recruiting has changed with the transfer portal and talked about kind of what they might be looking for as they look to add to this class going forward. Yeah, we're going to re- we're going to evaluate that. We pretty much got every position, you know. We've got some really young guys at the defensive tackle position uh, within our program that I think are going to have a really good spring. 
You know, we need to have a really good spring. And these are really long guys who were here last year, maybe even the year before that, to really add depth on that interior D-line. We did that with Niles Pinckney, did that with Micah Dutredway. Those two were both leaving the program, looking at some type of depth in there uh, as we go forward. Um, some of these freshmen are going to have to be able, like we told them in recruiting, you can't promise you're going to play. Nobody can ever promise you you're going to play. you got to go earn that, but we got to have enough length and size that if we get to the freshmen, they're good enough to be able to play. We feel like we have that at the end position. Uh, and then we're always looking for playmakers and then always looking for help up front. You know, just in, in, that's where the trenches are. And if we can add depth to that, not to say replace players in this program, if we can add depth to that and have competition continue to go up, then we're doing all the right things. And uh, we'll continue to do that. But I love where we're at with the high school development of some young players. And now, you know, this spring, uh, this uh, bowl prep and spring ball is incredibly important uh, to get some of those guys to keep coming up and, and, and rising to the occasion. Couple of other recruiting notes Texas A&M, the number one class in the country, according to ESPN.com getting past uh, Alabama at the end with a couple of late recruits. And Deion Sanders at Jackson State got the number two recruit in the country to flip his commitment from Florida State to Jackson State, Travis Hunter. Pretty cool uh, for Deion Sanders coaching at Jackson State. Good luck to Travis Hunter there. And uh, just a a cool story to see him going um, going to Jackson State. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake for 24-7 gaming, fun restaurants and bars, and luxurious hotel rooms. And join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Really happy to have Sarah McClellan back on Daily Delivery. It's been a pretty good run for the wild lately, Sarah, would you not say? Yeah, for sure. Even, you know, despite losing the last two games the team played before that, you know, the team was on an absolute roll, obviously jumped up to the top seed in the NHL at one point um, and, you know, really widened its lead in the central division. It's gotten a little more crowded <laughs> since then, but uh, clearly an important run for the team. And, you know, I think when all is said and done, it'll probably be looked back and is one of the highlights of this season and not just so much, you know, what it meant and translated to in the standings, but I think it was probably a real big confidence booster for this team to know that it's capable of playing that way of stringing wins together, stringing strong performances together. Um, And I don't think, you know, every win was identical. There was some blowouts, there was some nail biters. And I think being able to persevere in different circumstances and still be able to win, is probably a really important hallmark to have. It seems to be a trait probably the good teams have. So uh, how they won was impressive. That they won that many times was impressive. Um, But now, obviously, it's, you know, up to see what they do now after back-to-back losses. Exactly. They didn't get a chance to play Tuesday. Their game against the Hurricanes was postponed because of Carolina's COVID situation. That's just been a story throughout the year, and particularly lately, in the NHL and it's rapidly evolving. Don't necessarily want to spend much time on that right now because that again it, it can it changes every feel like every 24 hours. So I'm gonna focus a little bit more just on the team itself. And like you said, a lot of different things fueling that what well, it turned out to be an eight-game winning streak, if I'm not mistaken. And yep. you know, sometimes it was the defense. A lot of nights though, it was you know scoring four goals, and one of the guys who was getting them there a lot of the times was Kirill Kaprizov. And if we talked at the start of the year about not necessarily a slow start, but just getting played differently, just people knowing exactly what he's capable of. I don't know if he's adjusted his game or if things have just kind of 
evened out because that's what happens when players are that talented. But my goodness, he has been on a tear and looking every bit like the player he did as a rookie. Yeah, probably a few factors at play there. I I think part of it probably it does take time, you know, adapting into a new season as he was working out this new contract. um, You know, he wasn't in the Twin Cities. So maybe it takes a little bit while just to have that transition, um, get back into that groove. And then he's facing not only some teams that are familiar with him, but some teams that haven't faced him, but that are clearly aware and ready to dole out the attention that a player of that stature merits. Um, I think you did see teams defend him hard early on in the season. I think, you know, he kind of looked like he was getting followed on the ice at times. Um, Obviously we saw that he wasn't scoring early, but he was still involved. He was still assisting on goals, making plays. Um, But I think, you know, the turning point really came when he was split up from Matt Zuccarello. Um, He had scored before then, but that's been a line mate. That's kind of been a constant for him in his wild career. And I think he really took that as kind of a message, you know, and so they were split up. Kaprizov responds with his best game of the season, a four point career high, four point game. And I think ever since then, that consistency has been there. He has been producing goals, but we've really seen his playmaking take off this season. He's already close to matching his assist total from last season. So, you know, I I think it probably is a little bit of him probably reacting to the pressure he's getting. If, you know, teams are so focused on him, somebody else is probably open and he seems to have a knack to find that player. And maybe that's why we're seeing his assist total up, but You know, I think right now, though, you're right. He's very much moved into being the player that he was last season near the top of the league in production. And, you know, look what the Wild's done as a result. You know, while the wins piled up, Kaprizov was a factor pretty much every game. So um, they seem to go hand in hand, his play and how the team performs as well. But it's been balanced, too. I mean, it hasn't just been him. You've seen Fiala perk up here in certain games. You've had, obviously, Ryan Hartman having a career year. Marcus Foligno, we've talked about his output so far this season. Just up and down the lineup, Joel Erickson Eck, you kind of do wonder, like, how much of that is, you know, those guys playing well will free up Kaprizov versus how much attention paid to Kaprizov frees those guys up to do their thing. Yeah, as much as, you know, Kaprizov has been a leader offensively, maybe the story of the season so far has been the balance and has been the depth and the players, like you mentioned, producing at the rate that they have Ryan Hartman, 13 goals, Marcus Foligno, 13 goals. Uh, You know, I I think when you probably look at, you know, as an opposing team, the Wilds lineup card, yeah, you you know, maybe teams circle Kaprizov and they know to be aware of that line, but I don't think teams can ignore, you know, the Erickson act line with Marcus Foligno and Jordan Greenway and whatever line Kevin Fiala is on. And even the fourth line, uh, you know, obviously plays hard, finds ways to contribute goals as well. So I don't think this is a one-line top-heavy team, and I think that makes them a difficult out. I think that makes them a difficult matchup, and I think that's why we've seen you know them go toe-to-toe with the Torontos and, and the Tampa Bays and, and be a competitive team against some of the best in the NHL. So that balance and that depth 
that it's showing up now, you know, has obviously been encouraging for the team. It, it helps explain why they are where they are in the standings. But if that can stick around and if that can be part of the process in March and April in the playoffs, I think that's probably what separates the teams that, you know, fizzle quickly and the ones that go on long runs. What do you think they learned about their depth on defense when they played a lot and won a lot without Jared Spurgeon? Um, during during the a lot of that winning streak, and then obviously he's back now. But as 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 they kind of had to play without him, what do you think they learned? That they have reliable depth. You know, it's one thing to have one through seven, one through eight, but that they can utilize one through seven, one through eight, and, and not have a drop off, which we saw in those in those results. Um, you know, Jared Spurgeon was sidelined for most of that win streak. Jordy Ben played on the third pairing with Dmitry Kulikov. John Merrill was elevated, you know, to play alongside Alex Goligoski. And the team didn't really waver. You know, at, at times the defense was maybe the strongest part of some of those wins. The Wild was still scoring, like you said, a lot of four goal games, uh, maybe some empty net goals in there. But you know, the goaltending plus the defending really was rock solid during during that stretch. Now Jared Spurgeon gets added back in. Somebody has to be the odd man out. But to know that there are seven capable defenders on this roster is huge, especially in light of the turnover, the makeover that happened in the offseason. You know, if you think back, this, you know, was a blue line under severe construction with Ryan Suter gone, Ian Cole gone, Carson Soucy gone. Those are quite a few holes to fill and to have the blue line just kind of gel and snap back into place and still, you know, be part of this team's identity. You know, the wild are one of the top scoring teams in the league. It's probably been a while since we've said that, but I still think the foundation is its own end. And so to have a blue line come together and play like it has certainly bodes well for this team's future. Brodine was shaken up in the game on, I think that would have been Sunday. Was he, he would have played Tuesday though, right? If they would have had a game. Yeah, he would have played Tuesday. He, he didn't play Saturday or Sunday. Okay. Uh, so he missed two games with an upper body injury, but he was ready to return Tuesday against Carolina. The plan was going to have Jordy Ben come out of the lineup. So he would have been back to that extra seventh defenseman role. Um, but Brodine was ready to return. And that kind of gets the wild back into the order that it's used to. He can pair back up. Matt Dumba, Jared Spurgeon, and Alex Goligoski go back on the top pair, and John Merrill and Dmitry Kulikov reunite on the third pairing. But, which is interesting to note, even though everyone is available, um, Coach Dean Evison said, based on Jordy Ben's play, like he does want to still keep him engaged and maybe find some type of rotation to keep everyone involved because of how well Ben performed. And like I said, the team knowing if doesn't just have depth on paper. It has real-time depth that can play. Now, given that depth on defense that, that we've seen scoring up and down the lineup, you know, it becomes tricky when you start to think about, okay, this is a team that has the feel right now of, you know, being able to make a playoff run. You know, a lot of things can happen. We're still relatively early in the season, although we're probably getting close to that, you know, one th- about one-third of the way in at least. So it's not like, the sample size is is minuscule at this point, but you know, as we start to think about, you know, 
missing missing pieces, maybe the wrong word, but like added like enhancements to this roster. If you start thinking about the trade deadline and you know teams that are serious contenders like to add pieces at the deadline, you know, then then the Wild have done that to varying degrees of success over the years, and it led to a lot of deficiencies in draft picks over the years as well. So you got to be careful with that, and you know, not over estimating your chances but as you look at this roster is there any one area or do you if as you start to think about what might they want to add is there something that you could see being a piece that would particularly elevate this team I think it makes sense when you have teams like this that are rolling that have have obviously have cohesiveness and chemistry you know and they're in position to maybe add at the deadline and bolster you know a potential playoff run I think it's kind of the subtle intricacies of a lineup. You know, I, I think especially with the playoffs, special teams become so magnified. So I think, you you know, maybe a, a face-off specialist, somebody, you know, who can help kind of maybe round out the penalty kill. Uh, power play, obviously, would be something, too, that would make a lot of sense since that hasn't been, um, you know, as productive for the team as their five-on-five scoring, you know, their middle of the pack with the power play. Uh, maybe somebody who has a knack for, who's shown, has a track record of being able to contribute in that way. So, really, I mean, those are those are forward positions. I think up the middle, obviously, center is always a position that probably you can add more depth. Um, add more it just add more insurance and options to that position especially in playoffs where matchups tend to get magnified face offs become so much more critical um, just winning draws winning possession especially on a penalty killer or power play so I think you know kind of roles niches like that would would make sense um, but you're right you know there there is that risk too of interrupting what's worked and this is a team that's experienced that too in the past, trying to make that acquisition and then, you know, does it take, does it click? So I think, you know, we'll see how this team progresses, where they sit as it gets closer to the deadline. Um, but I could totally see, you know, like I said, those niche roles, um, a face-off specialist, a special teams guru, somebody who could come in and kind of compliment what's here, but maybe bring something that, um, could enhance some of these finer parts of the games that get magnified in the playoffs, you know, special teams, especially seem to really help determine, you know, team success in the postseason. I could see those being positions that, you know, would be on a team's radar in this type of situation. Obviously they don't have all the cap space in the world either. So that becomes a little bit of a a tricky proposition. One thing I wanted to run past you that I talked about maybe a week or two ago when I saw this was, ESPN.com had an insider piece that kind of sh- kind of showed, you know, through the data that, you know, while the Wild has been pretty good defensively in terms of like expected goals allowed and where the shots come from, that the goaltending has only been average to a little bit below average. We think of Cam Talbot as being solid, and I think he still is a solid goalie. I, I do wonder if at some point they would look, if they really thought they were a Stanley Cup title contender, if they would look at their goaltending situation and say, If we had a rental, give ourselves one more guy in net who would be an option, if that would be something they would potentially look at too. It's an interesting question. You know, right now, Cam Talbot is one of the best goalies in the NHL statistically in wins. You know, he went on this run, so he's catapulted right up there, you know, in in terms of victories especially. So um, I think, you know, maybe it would – you'd have to maybe look at where the team is at at that point in time because – 
you know, right now where they're at, you know, the goaltending has been steady. Capo Kakinen just had his probably his best performance of the year and it was a loss, but like the way he played, he played really solid. Um, and so then you have to see, well, how does that kind of piggyback into maybe his next performance? And even though it's kind of spot starts for him, what does that mean for him? So, uh, you know, goaltending, I think it's kind of like looking at that point in time. Right. And um, right now, I think it, it's been, a, it's been solid for the while, you know, especially Talbot. He's looked like the goalie he was last season. Um, you know, this has been his best start of his NHL career in terms of the victories he's amassed in, you know, certain games. So um, that has to obviously continue for the wild to have success. That's obviously been a backbone. So I think, you know, evaluating at that point in time, you know, we'll see where they're at. But for right now, like I said, I think the defense and goaltending, you know, maybe get overshadowed by the offense lately, especially during that win streak. But I think that they've been a really significant factor for this team's success as well. Well, it's fun to talk about these things instead of, uh, are they going to squeak into the playoffs, which we got accustomed to for so many years. They are a fun team to watch. I think when Ryan Hartman was on a couple of weeks ago, he's saying his agent was texting him just talking about how fun they are to watch, how he'd hate to have to play this team if he was an opponent. And it's true. They're probably a tough team to play against right now with all the depth and everything they bring to the table. I think so. And uh, yeah, it is exciting. Is it, it is entertaining, especially early in the season when you saw all those come from behind wins and, and late game dramatics. But I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there that, I think that this is a very tough team to play against, not only to match up against because of their depth, but the way they play, they seem to just be gritty and hard and you're in a battle with them. And I think that is part of their identity. And I think that's contributed to part of their success so far. Well, we'll talk about it more as the year goes on, I'm sure, including a couple of weeks from now, a little bit of outdoor hockey in the uh, winter classic to start the new year. Sarah McClellan, good stuff. We'll talk to you soon, okay? Take care. Now, Sarah and I didn't talk much about COVID, <clears throat> primarily because she was worried that protocols might change or something else might change because it's a rapidly evolving situation. And sure enough, not long after we recorded our segment, the NHL announced enhanced COVID protocols through at least January 7th. Daily testing now in place, masking at facilities, virtual meetings, and a no dining out indoors on the road for players and team personnel. So kind of back to last year a little bit with a lot of these protocols as the league, like many other leagues, has been ravaged by COVID lately. More than two dozen players in just the last couple days. The Wild, of course, had that game on Tuesday against Carolina postponed because of Carolina's positive tests. So we will see where that goes in both the NHL and other leagues that are talking about enhanced protocols as well. Let's shift to basketball for a little bit. Sarah Scalia, Gopher women's basketball team, hit nine three-pointers for the Gophers in their 99-93 win over Ohio on Wednesday. Impressive performance for her, big win for the Gophers, but she was not the person in this market who even made the most three-pointers on Wednesday. That belongs to Anthony Edwards of the Timberwolves, who made 10 becoming the youngest player in the NBA in league history to make at least 10 three-pointers in one game. Edwards also outscored Scalia by one, 38-37, but the Wolves also got the win against the Nuggets, 124-107. That's two in a row for them. 
And, you know, it, it just continues this year-long trend of two, two year-long trends, really. One of this kind of up, down, up, down. Feels like they're back on an upswing now after hitting a rough patch. And a lot of, a lot of their up, down has been coinciding with the availability of D'Angelo Russell. They are now 13-10 and 10 when D'Angelo Russell plays. They are 0-5 when he doesn't play. Now, every team's going to struggle to a certain degree when some of their best players, some of their starters aren't on the court, but that is a disparity you cannot ignore in that game. Plenty of milestones as well. Edwards went over 2,000 points for his career. Carl Anthony Towns went over 10,000 points for his career. The Edwards milestone was pretty interesting because he became um, this the seventh player in NBA history. This was a Sports Center tweet. Seventh player in NBA history to score 2,000 points in his first 100 games at age 20 or younger. Pretty good company for this. Here are the other six. Carmelo Anthony, Luka Doncic, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, and Zion Williamson. So, you know, some of it's just owing to opportunity. Some of it, though, owing to Edwards and his development. If you will remember, his NBA debut was less than one calendar year ago. The NBA did not start until the end of December last year. We're coming up on that, but he is still way, you know, still a ways to go in his development. And you know, one of the big things he's got to learn, and he addressed this after the game, is you know, have one good game, build on that. And the Wolves are still working on that too. Don't you know? Don't get complacent. Don't lapse back. Don't uh, you know? Don't don't fall on uh, you know, don't fall on your laurels. Rest on your laurels. But however you want to put it, stay consistent and, and keep you know keep pushing forward. And you know, so instead of just having one 38 point game and a 12 point game that gives you a 25 point average, you know keep keep pushing. And, and I think that's going to be a key to the Wolves going forward and, and avoiding some of this inconsistency that they've had so far this season. Speaking of three-pointers, my favorite story that emerged Wednesday was, uh, I even wrote about this on Randball blog, StarTribune.com. Um, Fox Sports writer was writing about Stephen Curry. You know, obviously, we talked about this on the show the other day, about how Curry broke the all-time three-point record. Reached out to uh, David Kahn, the former, you know, former Wolves boss, former Wolves president, about you know his decision not to draft Curry back in 2009. This is you know revisionist history, painful as it is for Wolves fans. We're Wolves fans are kind of past it by now, but maybe not. Still like to bring it up, but Khan has not really talked about this for a long time, as far as I can tell, as far as I can see. But he responded to a text from a Fox Sports writer, and. Uh, Khan, so Khan actually responded to this text with an answer about, you know, wanted, was, was wanting to know about the draft, drafting point guards Ricky Rubio and Johnny Flynn instead of Curry. And here was Khan's response that, uh, that was published in FoxSports.com. Quote, I would be happy to talk to you just as soon as you talk to the Clippers, who drafted Blake Griffin in parentheses, Memphis, who took Hashim Thabit, Sacramento, who took Tyreek Evans, and especially Washington, which traded the number five tick Five picked to me straight up for Randy Foy and Mike Miller and could have drafted Curry fifth was what Khan texted back. That's just classic Khan, by the way. I mean, it's it's true. There, there's certainly some truth to that, although where it kind of breaks down is you know, Blake Griffin was by far you know the consensus number one pick in that draft and has had a good career. Now, Sheep the Beat, I think, you look back at most mock drafts, was a consensus number two. Got a little different after that, but... Um, 
you know, really Curry in a lot of mock drafts wasn't expected to go until that 5-7 to seven range, right where the Wolves had two picks. Now, Khan's point about Washington is a good one. He fleeced them with that trade. That might have been his best personnel move that he made here, trading Mike Miller and Randy Foy to Washington for the number five pick in the draft. I cannot imagine that happening today, uh, a pick that big for players who you know, are not star players. But um, that, only added, that only added ammunition to the criticism later because Khan had two shots at drafting uh, Steph Curry. He had the five pick and the six pick. Now, he used the five pick on Ricky Rubio. That's fine. I think that was a justifiable pick at the time. Rubio's had a good career. Everybody said, yes, no-brainer, take Rubio. Everybody who followed the game thought that six would be Steph Curry, and instead he took Johnny Flynn with that pick. The Warriors got Steph Curry number seven, and as they say, the rest is history. Almost 3,000 three-pointers worth of history for Steph Curry. But I just thought it was amazing that Khan actually answered that question because I haven't seen him really address that, and uh, that he tried to basically say, um, yeah, I messed up, but other teams messed up too. That's not a great defense in my book. And speaking of disastrous tenures, Urban Meyer fired as head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars with uh, just 13 games into the season, his first year with Jacksonville. A comedy of errors this year, perhaps the final straw, a report Wednesday from former kicker Josh Lambeau saying that Urban Meyer kicked him during practice and told him to make his expletive kicks. Um, just just a, a laundry list of things that went wrong for Urban Meyer. Another college coach who did not succeed in the NFL. Kind of had this rah-rah, sloganeering kind of thing, which can work in college, works in the college game to a certain degree. I think the, the head coach of the Gophers, P.J. Fleck, has done a very good job you know, with motivation along that line. Doesn't work so well in the NFL. These guys are professionals. They're older. It doesn't. They, it's harder to buy into that mentality in the college game. You know. Plus, he had all sorts of off-field transgressions. A just a nightmare of a tenure for Urban Meyer that was mercifully put to an end early Thursday morning. Let's finish with the cooler on a sad note. Bob Peters, an underrated legend in college hockey history, died. Tuesday, age 84, in Bemidji, longtime head coach at Bemidji State. He won 744 career games as a college hockey coach, 702 of them at Bemidji State, 13 national titles, either at NAIA, Division II, or Division III in 34 seasons. Fifth all-time winningest coach in college hockey history. Now, I got a chance to meet Bob in 2000 when Bemidji State had just made the leap uh, the year before to Division One hockey and they were hosting the Gophers for a series up in Bemidji. It was early in the year. It was a big deal in Bemidji. The, the, the arena was sold out and it was just kind of a, a mile marker for the program. The Gophers ended up, you know, pretty easily winning if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. I think, the, I think game one was nine to three, something along those lines, but did not matter at the time. Bob Peters was beaming with you know, the full house the passion that they had for bringing that program to Division One, And obviously they've had a certain amount of success since doing that. They made it to five Division One NCAA tournaments and reached the Frozen Four in 2009. So they've been a program that has you know, earned its place in Division One. Bob Peters, a big reason for that. Rest in peace, Bob, to a great career, a legend that uh, you know maybe a lot of people haven't heard enough about, but uh, certainly worthy of every accolade he has ever gotten. That will do it for today. 
Good stuff coming up tomorrow. Mark Craig with his NFL picks and plenty of other things to talk about as we wind down the week. Thanks for joining me here today. I'm Michael Rand. Back at it on Friday.